Um, I was really looking forward to preaching in the incomparable series because for those who have been with us for the last uh, year or so, preaching through the Old Testament, often I would co- it would come to time to prepare my sermon, I'd look at the topic and it might be the book of Isaiah, and I have 66 chapters to go through, and the challenge was navigating through the quantity of, of information that we were going through, and so I was so excited to come and preach on the book of Matthew, one chapter, Sermon of the Mount, um, and, and to find a message from there. And I opened it up, and I decided to preach, focus on 10 verses, and I realized that there is as much to wade through in 10 verses as there is um, in, a, in a whole book of the Old Testament, because the amazing insights that we see in the Sermon of the Mount, are just there is just so much depth to them, and every verse you could preach a whole sermon on. And so it's been a real thrill, and uh, I've learned so much in preparing this sermon. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Uh, Father in heaven, we just, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us about you, about you being a God of love. We thank you about how it reveals to us um, how we are to live. It, review, it reveals to us the hope that we have. And as we dive into Scripture this morning, I pray that your Spirit would help us to get a, a greater insight into the Christian experience, Lord. And that's what I really is on my heart um, today. So Father, be with us. And, and may this, this, every person here, just like what Blair said with that story, may each person come here and feel that you are speaking to their hearts directly, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is our series here. These are the chapters that we are going through. Uh, we divided the book up. Uh, a quick review of where we've been so far with, with uh, the Son. We've seen Jesus is born uh, to Mary. We see he's the Son of, of Man. He's also the Son of, son of God, fully uh, human, fully God at the same time. We see he, he gets baptized, and in the baptism he is affirmed as the Son of God from the voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the Son. We keep going through into the wilderness, and as we saw in the last sermon, we see Satan comes up to Jesus and tempts him, if you are really the Son of God, if you are really the Son of God, then turn these stones into bread. And Jesus comes out of the wilderness, and he comes out as a preacher. And I want to show you this from the text. These divisions that we've, had, we've come up with are not just what we're trying to put up on the text, but we really believe that this is what is in the text. And I want to show that to you uh, to start off with. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. So Jesus has been in the wilderness. He comes out, chapter 4, verse 17, and it says, uh, From that time, Jesus began to preach, okay, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. That was the message that Jesus was going around and, and preaching. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. But this created a bit of a problem in the mindset of the Jews, and that is because the Jews had completely misunderstood the whole nature of this kingdom that was coming upon the the world. And one of the big troubles that the Jews had was the, the Jews thought that their main enemy was the Romans. And so the Jews, they've been in oppression for, for a very long time, and when Jesus comes and he starts saying, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming. The Jews are thinking, 
That means deliverance from the Romans. And if a new kingdom and deliverance from the Romans is what Jesus is talking about, then that's going to require, there's going to be um, armies that Jesus is going to lead, and there's going to be this something that's going to go down that's going to take the Jews from being, even though they had some sort of freedoms, being a nation that is under oppression to being suddenly the nation that's sitting on the throne. They're going to have, go from being, some of the people are going to go from being in poverty to riches, being outcasts to being, having these mansions. And you can just imagine that the Jews have this, this sense of, uh, of Jesus is going to bring about some sort of a, glor- uh, uh, a glorious kingdom right now, right here. And so Jesus is going around, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming. And to add to this misunderstanding, let's go to Matthew chapter 4, uh, verse 23. As Jesus goes around, it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. So here I want to, I want to bring to your attention three things. Uh, we'll go back, sorry. Three things, observations about this beginning preaching ministry of Jesus. Number one, he's preaching about a new kingdom, and as I've already discussed, in their minds, this was a kingdom which was deliverance over the, over the Romans, whereas Jesus was, try, was coming to bring deliverance primarily over sin. Secondly, Jesus can heal every sickness and every injury. Now, if you're about to go and, and, and form an army and go and fight the Romans, is this going to be a good thing to have as your leader? Someone who you get shot with an arrow and Jesus comes over and heals you and you're ready to go again. Okay, so Jesus emerges as the ideal person to lead this revolution against the Romans. And thirdly, large crowds are following after Jesus. They're attracted to Jesus. He's, he has this charisma and, and the Jews are, are getting excited. This could be the person. This is where all of our wants, all of our needs is going to turn into ease and comfort and riches and Jesus is going to establish his kingdom, and they had fully misunderstood what Jesus was coming to do. So Jesus, let's go across to chapter 5. Chapter 5. So Jesus, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, Imagine all these crowds that are gathering up around Jesus. They have all sorts of sicknesses. There's this kingdom expectation that is going to happen. And Jesus realizes that the, the location that he has is there's just too many people. It's too hard to talk, communicate to so many people. And he goes and he finds a more relaxing, uh, more appropriate setting to, to handle all these, these, these great multitudes that's there. And so Jesus gets them and they go up onto a mountain and they sit down and there's all sorts of people from all sorts of experiences waiting to hear something from Jesus. And you can just imagine the anticipation. What is Jesus about to say about the kingdom? Is he about to make some sort of announcement that we're about to start this revolt against the Romans? What's going to take place? And there's this sense of expectation. And Jesus begins his sermon 
And this is what he says. Verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus knows that when he looks down at the future, he realizes that his life is going to be one of, of, I guess, of poverty, of hardship, of temptation, and it's going to end up on the cross. And he looks around him and he sees all of these people who, in their mindset, it's the complete opposite. It's going to go into, um, into as I said, ease and riches. And Jesus here has to somehow counter that misunderstanding that they have. And I can imagine they heard these first words with a sort of catastrophic disappointment. Okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit. It must have sounded so backwards to them. As I was reading through this, as I was doing some research in this, uh, I came across this illustration which I want to share with you um, that sort of illustrates what Jesus is doing here. And... um, there was a movie back in the 1950s that was produced that was called Breaking the Sound Barrier. And the, it, it tells the story of these, these test pilots who were trying to be the first people to take a plane through and past the speed of sound. And as the movie develops, um, these pe- different people have these different planes, and, and time after time when they go through the sound barrier, they, the, the plane either like falls apart or the, it, turn, it, it, it um, crashes and these people's lives are being lost time after time after time. And it comes to the point where one of the test pilots, is his turn to try, and he, and he gets this suspicion that he knows what's, what's going on. And he, his suspicion is that when he goes through the sound barrier, what he actually needs to do is reverse the controls in order to um, continue flying. So if you want to go down, move the, the, the controls as if you want to go up. If you want to go up, move your c- controls as if you want to go down. And everything is, is reversed when you go through the sound barrier. And so he gets there, and he gets to this point, and he pushes through, and he suddenly switches the direction that he's doing and, and does everything in reverse, and he becomes the first person that flies through the sound barrier. Now, if there's any people who fly planes in here, I don't think that's actually, it's historically accurate with how it actually works. But the illustration is that when you go through the sound barrier, at least in this movie, everything goes backwards. And everything is done upside down and back to front and opposite. And this is what Jesus is trying to communicate. That when it comes to the kingdom of God, everything works backwards. The controls work upside down. And Jesus is communicating all these things that they thought were blessings might not be, and things that they maybe didn't realize were blessings actually are. And so let's read through the, what is sometimes referred to as the Beatitudes now. So in Matthew chapter 5, In verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everything that this crowd was expecting, Jesus has just turned upside down. And we're going to unpack these verses now. So, turn with me to verse 
to begin with, I want to look at this word that's called blessed. What is it that this word communicates? The, the Greek word is makyrios, and there's a number of definitions, and one writer that I was, that I was reading, R.T. Uh, France, who wrote the Gospel of, of Matthew, a book called the Gospel of Matthew, he, he puts forward a number of possible translations of this word, and he says that there's something wrong with all of them, okay? Blessed kind of communicates what's, being, uh, what's trying to be um, conveyed, but he says it's a little bit too theologically loaded. Um, there's other words that he could have been, if he was trying to communicate blessed, but it's a different word. Uh, and so blessed might not be the, the best word. Another one is happy. Okay? Happy are the poor in spirit. And you might have heard this. And this is getting a little bit closer to the meaning. However, he says it maybe emphasizes a little bit too much on feelings. When it comes down to happy are those who mourn, well, how can you be happy and mourning at the same time? And he says, an even closer word is congratulations. Congratulations are the poor in spirit. And he says, maybe it's too colloquial. And he says, the closest phrase that he's come to that's accurately conveying this word is, good on ya. And he says, the problem with this is it's just too Australian and most people don't have any idea what you're talking about. And so I figured, well, it, we might be able to have a little bit of an understanding. So, good on ya. As we read through this, Jesus is saying, good on ya, good on ya, good on ya. And so in the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, could maybe be translated like this. Good on ya, poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's from the Jared's new Aussie version. <laughs> so what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I want to take you to a little parable that we find in the Gospel of Luke, um, which conveys the experience of two people, very contrasting people, one a Pharisee and another a tax collector. And I believe that in this crowd before Jesus, both of these people were represented. It says, two men went up into the, temp into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Does this person see himself as spiritually poor or spiritually rich? This is a spiritually rich person, at least in his own perspective. And he looks out on the people around him and he just pities those poor people that are so inferior to him. And the Jews had reason to, to maybe some reasons to think like this. They were the ones that, the, the, the nation that God had called specifically, and they're the ones that God gave the scriptures to. They're the ones that had the temple. And the Pharisees in particular, they were the educated ones. They were the ones had every reason to feel spiritually proud. The tax collector, on the other hand, it says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. This man didn't, he would have looked at the tax collector and gone, I mean, the Pharisee and said, like, I wish maybe I could be like that, but he looks at his own life and he, and he realizes that he is completely spiritually and morally bankrupt. Bankrupt. 
And Jesus says, good on you. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that you are spiritually and morally bankrupt. But why is this a good, a good, uh, a good thing at all? Why is it good to realize that we don't have it all together? When I was in prim- would have been primary school, I had one of my friends over at my house, and we were at, at the front of my house, we had this like, uh, concrete section, little driveway, and we'd often ride our bikes around and rollerblades and, also, and always be riding something around in that front um, concrete section. And one of my friends had this, was riding this little bike, and it had one of those brakes that you... Um, it was like a little BMX bike, where to put the brake on, you have to pedal the, ba- the pedals backwards. Do you remember those bikes? You pedal it backwards, and suddenly the brake goes on. And we're riding around, and his chain falls off. And we didn't really think that maybe without the chain, the brakes didn't work. I didn't think of that. But we go up to the top of the driveway, and we were about going to race down this, this driveway to see if we can go down the quickest. And it go, the, just the, the course that was before us, so it goes down, there's a big area, and then there's this big wooden lattice on the back, followed by a drop probably about that big off into the, the garden behind. So it's this really big drop. And we, we get ready, and we say, go. So we like race down, and we get to the end, I put the brakes on, and my friend pedals backwards, and the pedals just spin backwards, and he just goes straight into that lattice. The lattice falls off, and he goes over the edge after it as well. And it makes me think, in his situation, would it have been a blessing to know that there was a problem? For him, you'd say, blessed is the one who realizes that his brakes don't work. And Jesus is saying the same to us. Blessed is the one who's poor in spirit. Not because that's a good thing to be, but because it's much better than not realizing that you have a problem. I've got here the worst problem you can have is the one you don't know that you have. And that's what Jesus is communicating with us. Um, In the, the book Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, Ellen White says, He who feels whole, who thinks that he is reasonably good and is contented with his condition, does not seek to become a partaker of the grace and righteousness of Christ. She goes on, There is no room for Jesus in the heart of such a person. They feel that they are full, therefore they go away empty. And this was the problem of the, the, the Jews, and especially some of the Pharisees at the time when Jesus was there, they felt full. They had every spiritual, every spiritual um, treasure that they could need, and Jesus comes along, and there's no need of him because he's already full. And Jesus is saying, you need to be poor in spirit. And the reality is that we all are. It doesn't matter what our background is, what our achievements are, we are all poor in, poor in spirit. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, looking at the this, this situation of the Jews that would have tended to think that they were spiritually rich, he says, What then? Are we Jews any, any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We are all poor in spirit, and the place we need to be is a place where we recognize that that's the case. 
But someone might be thinking, but that's just the start of your journey. I was poor in spirit 20 years ago. Obviously, I'm not now because God has done this great work in me, and now I am spiritually rich. I've shared this quote with you once before, and it's from Steps of Christ. And I love this quote because it reveals that at every step along the journey, we can realize that we are spiritually poor. And it says, the closer you come to Jesus, the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes, for your vision will be clearer and your imperfections will be seen in broad and distinct contrast to his perfect nature. It goes on to say, but if you do not see your own moral deformity, it is an unmistakable evidence that we have not had a view of the beauty and excellence of Christ. The further you go along the journey, the closer you come to Jesus, the more we will realize our spiritual poverty. And in that situation, Jesus says, good on you. Beatitude number two. And we're going to spend less and less time as we go through each one. Um, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, this is like the controls are backwards. Mourning is something that is unpleasant. When I've been deeply saddened by something, it's not an experience that I enjoy. It's not something I ever want to do again. But Jesus looks at these people and he says, Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn about what? Well, it doesn't really say. And I would say that in a general sense, mourn about people who are mourning about anything. Jesus is there to help us and to comfort us no matter what the difficulty is that we're struggling with. But from Matthew's perspective, as he goes through them, these things, you can see that he understands them, especially from a spiritual perspective. And we see that if, we, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, in verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor, but the poor in what? The poor in spirit. Verse 6, Blessed are those who, are hung, who hunger and thirst. Any hunger and thirst? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted. Any sort of persecution? Persecuted for righteousness' sake. Here we see that Matthew understands to these, although these can be understood in a broader way, Matthew is specifically interpreting these things and understanding these things to be from a spiritual perspective. Blessed are those who mourn spiritually. Well, what are we mourning? And I'd like to say that connected to our first one, when we realize that we have this spiritual bankruptcy, the next step is to mourn that. And what we are starting to discover from here is that these beatitudes, these instructions on being happy, these eight congratulations, are actually a process. These, Jesus is actually unfolding to us the, the spiritual journey that we go on in order to enter the kingdom. Okay, it's not about getting swords and going and smashing the Romans, but these are the, the spiritual things that we will have to go through in order to become a citizen of, of the kingdom. And once we realize that spiritual poverty, we then mourn our condition. And what does it mean to mourn sin? I'd like to suggest that there's, there's four ways why sin should cause us grief. Number one, sin has destroyed humanity. You look on the news, you, you look around you in whatever sphere of life you find yourself in, you see heartache, you see suffering, you see all sorts of devastation. And when we look at what sin has caused our world, that should cause us grief. Number two, 
Not only has sin caused the destruction around us, but that same sin is within us. And that should cause us grief. Thirdly, it was our sins that put Jesus on the cross. And when we look at the cross and we realize that he was held there, not by those nails, but for our sins and his love for us, and the ugly manifestation that we see there is really us on display, that should cause us grief. And fourthly, our sin separates us from God. True repentance is not mourning that, that we have punishment coming up and we're on the wrong side of God and we have, we're going to be judged as guilty. True repentance is realizing the ugliness of sin and, and being grief-stricken about that. And Jesus says, Good on you to those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Number three, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meek is something that I've always struggled to understand, probably because it's something that, it's not a word that we use in conversation very frequently. I've never said, oh, that person over there is just so meek. Like, maybe there's people here that do use that word. I don't use that word. And so it's often been a struggle. And so this is another one. I got out the, the Greek dictionary, and I thought, well, what does this word mean in the, in the original Greek? And praeus is, is the word that's, that's, um, that's translated as meek here. And the definition that it gave was this, pertaining to not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Okay? And it can be translated gentle, humble, considerate, or meek. Now the Jews, did they have a sense of their own importance? At least some of them did. They looked down and they saw those Gentiles. Look at all those Gentiles. Or that, that Pharisee, oh, I'm so thankful that I'm not like that tax collector I do this, 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 and this, unlike that sinful person. Meekness is the opposite of, of pride. It is recognizing that you don't have it all together, and you're not obsessed with your own self-importance. Uh, and Jesus exemplified this. When we look at um, the, the, the Last Supper, Jesus, who was the most important person there, he's the king of the universe, he is God, he's the creator Everyone's bickering about who's going to be the greatest and who's going to wash their feet because not me, because I'm, I'm better than everyone else. Jesus is the one who steps aside, who gets down on his knees, and he washes their feet. This is an example of meekness, not being overly impressed by a sense of your self-importance. What about just the incarnation? Here we see Jesus, who had all the glories of heaven. It was not beneath him to step down from his throne in heaven and become a baby in a manger. That's meekness. And Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit uh, the earth. How does this fit into our process? Once we realize that we're spiritually poor and we mourn that spiritual condition, when we look around us, we realize that no one else is beneath us because we have the same problems. We are all equal. We're all... We are all suffering with this problem of sin. But you might be thinking, okay, so there's some people that I'm the same, but there's certainly some people that are much worse than me. Okay, this week you would have probably horrified to see the terrorist attack that took place in Turkey. There was over 40 people killed and over 200 people that were injured. Those terrorists come in there and they're and they're shooting people, and they're, bombing, and they're blowing things up. 
is Jesus suggesting that we shouldn't see ourselves as being more important than those, or elevating ourselves as being more important than those terrorists? Surely we're better than them. When we read through the rest of, of chapter 5, which we're not going to unpack, obviously we're not going to unpack a lot of chapter 5, but I want to draw your attention to a section in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And it says this, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. In other words, Okay, you might not be murderers, but if you have that same anger in your heart, then the reality is you have murder in your heart. It goes on to say with the last in verse 27, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that any, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says you might have not have done the action in, physically done the action, but the action is there in your heart. It goes on to say, in Steps of Christ, oh, sorry, this is actually, uh, I think I have the wrong reference there. Thoughts on the Mount of Blessings. Um, Ellen White says, The spirit of hatred and revenge originated with Satan, and it led him to put to death the Son of God. Whoever cherishes malice or unkindness is cherishing the same spirit, and its fruits will be unto death. Um, in the revengeful thought, the evil deed lies unfolded as the plant in the seed. And she goes on to say, read the verse, Whosoever hath his bro- hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So she said it's like a seed. The seed has all of that plant encapsulated in that seed. But it looks so much smaller than the real thing. And in the same way, Jesus is saying that if we have that anger in our heart, it's like that seed which we saw and that, that we've seen all over... Um, the TV with these terrorist attacks and murder and all these terrible things. Sin is sin. And sin fully developed and fully grown turns into those horrible things. And that sin lies within each of our hearts. And when we realize that, um, we realize that we're not better than anyone else. But also, conversely, no one is better than us. We are all on even uh, footing. When we stop thinking we are better than others, we are freed to serve. And that's what we see in the life of Jesus. Jesus, didn't matter whether they were the leper, whether they were people with dirty feet, whoever it was, Jesus was meek and he was free to serve freely. Number four. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Have you ever been really hungry? (laughs) David said yesterday. Um... Tomorrow I'm going to be uh, running this half marathon. There's a few of us that are doing the half marathon. And it reminds me of the last half marathon I did, which was a pretty bad experience uh, last year. And one of the things that really stands out to me from the half, the most memorable thing that took place was when I saw the finish line, I was running, and by this stage I was just in agony, and I was just desperate for some energy. And I saw these, just through the finish line, they had these big tubs of oranges, and I saw those oranges, and I was like, it was almost this, un- in, like, I was lost full control, and I was just like, I saw these things, and I just, my hands were just digging into them, and I was shoving them in my face, and there was orange, like, dripping all over my face, and I didn't care at all, because I was just so desperate. 
to fill myself with these oranges. I just left with like handfuls of oranges and bananas. I was so desperate to fill myself after this, this long run. And I think that's the kind of thing that Jesus is wanting to communicate here. Blessed are those who hunger. God, Jesus is saying he wants us to have this desperate hunger and thirst. But for what? For righteousness. Now, do you have a desperate hunger and thirst for righteousness? Sometimes that isn't very popular in our culture today. We hunger all sorts of different things. And as one person, uh, D.A. Carson, in, in his book, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he, he, um, he, revealed, he sort of talks about how this isn't a popular thought in, in popular Christianity even. He says, The pursuit of righteousness is not even popular among professing Christians. Many today are prepared to seek after things spiritual maturity, maturity, real happiness, the Spirit's power, effective witnessing skills. Other people chase from preacher to preacher and from conference to conference seeking some vague blessing from on high. They hunger for spiritual experience, but how many hunger and thirst for righteousness? And I think this is a challenge for me. And I think it's a test of whether or not we've really experienced repentance. The person who's really gone through an experience of repentance, will have this hunger to do what is right. And God will put that within us. This is a supernatural thing that God does within us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And why is that blessed? Because God is able to fill us. We can't do it. We don't fill ourselves. But Jesus says, they shall be filled. And now the next four Beatitudes, we're going to go through these quite a bit quicker, these next four. And these are really, as I was looking at these, these are unveiling how Jesus is going to fill us, fill this hunger of righteousness. So the first one is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What's the difference between grace and mercy? Is there a difference? Maybe, maybe not. D.A. Carson is sort of dealing with this, the difference between grace and mercy. And he says often there's not. He says the two terms are frequently synonymous. But where there is a distinction between the two, it appears that grace is a loving response when love is undeserved. So, for example, Jesus on the cross, he looks down at his murderers and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't deserve that. And Jesus wishes his forgiveness on them. That's grace. Says, and mercy is a loving response prompted by the misery and helplessness of the one on whom the love is to be sh- um, showered. In other words, grace answers to the undeserving, mercy answers to the, the miserable. And I like that distinction. Grace, uh, mercy is when you come across a person in need, a person who is suffering, and you're filled with compassion for that person. Compassion that motivates you to action. The specific word... Um, I was, I've made some mistakes here, sorry. The, the word is to be greatly concerned about someone in need is what the word communicates. And Jesus is going to create that within us. As, as we realize our spiritual poverty and we mourn that, we stop thinking that we're better than any, anyone else, we do, God gives us this hunger for righteousness. Jesus begins to fill us. And the first way that he fills us is this compassion and this mercy for the people in, who have need and suffering around us. And those who were studying the Sabbath school lesson this morning, 
You see that Jesus, we're talking about Jesus being the restorer who went and saw people with needs and he sought to meet those needs. Filling us, Beatitude number two, uh, verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure in heart? The Pharisees, in many ways, were the opposite of this. They looked pure on the outside, but as Jesus said in Matthew 23, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. What a horrible illustration, a horrible picture. This tomb that looks so beautiful on the outside, but there's just death on the inside. And that's how Jesus was describing these Pharisees. And it got me thinking that in our own strength, we can, only, we can appear clean only on the outside, but only God can clean us on the inside. And so our best efforts to, appear, to, to become righteous will always end in hypocrisy, because as we clean the outside up, we can't change the heart. And as, G, as God says um, through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 34, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God promises that when we hunger for, for righteousness, when we come before him in repentance, that he will change our inner person, those desires, those things that motivate us, our deepest wants and, and, and needs and desires. God will change those and make them and put them in conformity to, to his will. Uh, filled with purity. Uh, third way that, that Jesus fills us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Jesus is the world's greatest peacemaker. The greatest peacemaker who ever lived is Jesus. And what did he make peace be- between? Jesus looked down on a world who through sin had separated them from him, who had created through this their sin, had had um, created this, this, um, this chasm between them and God, and Jesus said, I'm going to bring peace between God and humanity. And so much was Jesus desiring to be a peacemaker that he went down to that cross, and he hung there on that cross for you and for me to restore us into a relationship with God. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that same peacemaking desire will turn into a passion for them to go and save the lost around them. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Here we see going and sharing the good news with people is, is synonymous with um, publishing peace. Jesus is, wants to create us into people who, who see our role is to, to bring about peace between the people around us and God, to go share the good news of Jesus. Every one of us is called to be a peacemaker. Every one of us is called to share the good news of Jesus. So there's our sequence. We have one less, one left to go. Jesus has filled us with compassion, with purity, with mission. What's the pinnacle of the, the Christian transformation process going to be? When we go through step after step after step after step, and we arrive at the heights of being a Christian, what is it going to look like? Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted 
not just locked up in prison because they've done the wrong thing, but persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I, I believe that the reason most of us do what is right is because it has some sort of advantage to us. If you're driving along in your car and you see that speed limit, what's the reason why you obey it? You don't want to be, get a speeding ticket, you don't want to be locked up, you don't want to um, have the police after you. Um, the reason that we do what is right so often is motivated by, um, by desire. It makes our life easier. But the real test of how much we love a life of righteousness is if we're willing to live a righteous life even when it is going to make things more difficult. You think in a classroom situation at school, and for those who are at school, the reason you obey your teacher, you don't want to get a detention. But imagine if obeying your teacher would give you a detention. Like, that would really reveal how much you wanted to obey uh, the teacher. And Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The pinnacle of the Christian transformation process is persecution. Tertullian in the second century wrote these words, The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Why is that? When someone looks at someone, a, p- a person who believes something so passionately that they're willing to give their life for it, it conveys a stronger message than anything else, anything else can. And they see that person that is, whether they're being burnt on the stake or whatever it is, giving their life for Jesus, it, it gives them this conviction that that thing is worth taking hold of themselves. The greatest witness we can give is to follow God even when it's, it's, it's hard, even when it results in persecution. And the persecution, it says for unrighteous sakes, but it's more than just being devoted to a to living a certain way as opposed to another way. It's being devoted to a person. And, Jesus, and it says in verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you falsely on my account. Not just on righteousness account, but that is an expression of your devotion to a person, or your devotion to Jesus Christ. So there's our process. What does it look like to be a Christian? If you wanted to step back and see, um, for all those people here that want to be a Christian, there's people that are a Christian, and you want to say, what does it look like to be a member of the kingdom of heaven? This is what Jesus says it looks like. Realize your spiritual poverty. Mourn your condition. Stop thinking you're better than everyone else. And let that turn into a hunger for righteousness. And Jesus says he'll fill you. He'll fill you with compassion. He'll fill you with purity, not just on the outside, but also on the inside. He'll fill you with mission, and he'll fill you with a self sacrificial love for Jesus that says, you know what, I'm willing to endure whatever might come before me in order to have Jesus in my life. So what are the take-home points from this message? There are four things that I want you to take home today. Number one is it all begins with repentance. Repentance is that deep sorrow for sin and a turning away from it. Not just turning to anything from it, but turning to Jesus. And if we deeply come to before Jesus in, in repentance, then the rest is, is before us. It begins, that's our entry point into the kingdom. It all begins with repentance. Take home point number two. We hunger, Jesus fills. 
Okay? In here it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for you will be filled. It's not our job to fill ourselves. Jesus promises that he will be the one who fills us. Our job is to have the hunger, which in itself is a gift that God gives us in the first place. We hunger, Jesus fills. If we come in repentance, he will turn us into fully committed followers of him. It's not our responsibility, it's Jesus's. Take home point number three. The promises exceed the challenges. When you look at the Beatitudes, there's a lot of things, as I said, this is an upside-down way of viewing life. There's blessing in mourning. You're happy if you're persecuted. Congratulations if you're poor. This seems like this is, there's challenges involved in this. The Christian life is a, it can be, at times, a difficult one. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. But as we read through them, and I'm going to quickly read back through them again, notice how much the promises exceed the challenges. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted with forgiveness and with freedom from, from a guilty conscience. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the mercy, for they shall also receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The, the, every challenge that we, that we face as a Christian, God has a promise for us that far exceeds that challenge. And the final take-home point relates to that, that final... Um, the final take-home point is that wherever you are in the process, the kingdom is yours. When you read number 10, it says, blessed are, the persecuted, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're almost tempted to think, okay, I need to go through, I need to go through all of these steps in order to be in the kingdom of heaven. I need to repent. I need to mourn my condition. I need to have this compassion for people. I need to have this purity on the inside. I need to be filled with mission. I need to have this self-sacrificial heart. And at the end, then I'm a part of the kingdom. But it couldn't be further from the truth. And when you look at there, there's a little technique that Matthew is using here. And if you look at the last one, which we just read, the promise is for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But if you look at the first beatitude, verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. What step is this? Step number one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What, what Matthew is communicating is, is that from step number one right through to step number eight, the, the the biggest step you could take all the way through, you are, a you are a member of the kingdom of heaven. We think of, of uh, Paul, who says at the end of his life, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, about to have a martyr's death, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He's gone through that process. And at the end, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He understood that as a person who has been poured out, his life has been poured out, that he's finished the good fight, he's run the race, that he is a member of the kingdom of heaven. But there's also people like the thief on the cross, 
who was dying there. He had lived a life as a criminal, as a uh, probably re- revolting against the Romans. Who knows what he had done that had put him there? And he looks to Jesus and he says, and he suddenly has this realization of his need compared to the love of, of, of Jesus who's hanging right next to him. And he says, he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is step number one. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. As long as the process has begun, you are a, you are a part of God's kingdom. And that's the message I want you to take home today. Wherever you are in the process, the kingdom is yours. So this is, I guess, an opportunity for us to examine our lives, to, re- to say, well, where am I on the, on, the, on the process with God? Am I making progress through it? Am I taking step after step? Am I improving? Am I continuing to grow? Am I continuing to have this sense of need and dependency of God? And do I realize the promise that Jesus gives us is the assurance that if we come to him in repentance, from then on in, we are a member of the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you for your overwhelming love. When we read this, we get this sense that we don't really need to do that much, Lord. We come before you, and when we compare ourselves to you, we're overwhelmed with our weakness and our shortcomings, Lord. And then you do everything within us, Lord. You give us that that. that desire, that hatred for sin. You give us the desire for righteousness, Lord. You give us that, that hunger. You fill us with all of these, with mercy, with the desire to see other people saved, Lord. The willingness to endure persecution, Father. And Father, we just want to submit ourselves to the, pro- to the process today. We acknowledge we can't do it our own, ourselves, Lord. We acknowledge that our best efforts will only result in hypocrisy. And Father, we need you to transform us from the inside out. And so, Father, we pray that, that you'll help us to truly be people whom you can look down and say, good on you. Lord, may we be citizens of the kingdom, Lord. And may we not believe the lies that the world has told us about what we really should be pursuing, Lord, but may we believe what you have taught us about the upside-down nature of your kingdom, Lord. And may we be focused on, on following you, Lord. May you give us that hunger. And mostly, Lord, may you just help us to find that assurance that when we come to you, that we are a member of the kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and his will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.